Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Today, we have with us an extremely special featured guest. He's a Milton Friedman Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, a senior affiliated scholar at the Makeda Center at George Mason University, co-founder and chief academic officer at Freedom Trust, and associate professor of economics at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. He is also the co-host of Words and Numbers and has written books on statistics and economics, as well as hundreds of op-eds for many of the most prominent media outlets in the country. It is truly my honor to welcome to the show, Dr. Anthony Davies. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Firstly, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself, tell us a bit about your background and your economic philosophy. Well, I, yeah, so economic philosophy is a weird question for me. Um, I'm trained as a as a econometrician, which is basically a, an economist who studies statistics. And um, as such, I follow the data and the reasoning where it goes. And and so I'm kind of, I, I would start off by saying, well, I don't have a philosophy. I just follow the data and, and, and the reason. But I've discovered something interesting over the past 20 years, 25 years of studying. And that is that not all the time, but almost all the time, the data and the reason point in the same direction. And that is a direction of greater individual freedom and more limited government. Now, I'm sure there are limits to how far that goes, right? But if, if I were to describe a philosophy then that stems from what I've observed of the world, it's that, that the individual should be, the people should be more important and the government should be less important. All right. Um, well, the, the first time I came across your work, Dr. Davies, was a lecture you gave for the Mercatus Center in 2013, where you spoke about taxation across different income levels. A few things that stuck with me from that talk were, was the fact that over the past 70 years or so, we've had fluctuations across income tax, uh, the income tax rate, capital gains tax rate, corporate tax rate, and so on. However, we've seen that there is virtually nothing that can change the percentage of the economy that the government brings in in taxes, which stays stable around 17 or 18 percent. You also talked about in that lecture how raising tax rates paid by the rich or pretty much anybody is not going to make much of a dent in the deficit. Now, almost eight years after your lecture, we've seen this problem expand to an unimaginable scale with the $29 trillion national debt, trillions more in unfunded liabilities and programs such as Social Security under threat of insolvency. So, Dr. Davies, I wanted to start off by asking you where you see this country headed in the next five to 10 years. The next five to 10 years are going to be interesting because Social Security is going to be insolvent um, by Social Security's own estimate within about seven years, seven or 10, seven to 10 years, give or take. And that's going to force politicians to do one or both or a combination of things. And that is either to raise payroll taxes by 20 percentage points or to cut uh, benefits to retirees by 20 percentage points or some combination thereof. And as you can imagine, neither one of those things is going to be politically popular. And the thing is, most people, when they hear something like that, will say, well, we just need to tax the rich, let them pay for it, they can afford it. And part of the problem here is that we've we've largely taxed the rich about as much as we can do. And by that, what I mean is, if you look back through history, and this is the, the data you had cited just a moment ago, 
it doesn't matter whether you tax the rich a high amount or a low amount. It doesn't matter whether you tax wages or capital gains. The federal government has co collected a consistent about 17 to 18% of the economy in tax revenue. And so what that tells me is that for whatever reason, we've gotten about as much as we can get from the rich. What politicians are going to turn to, I believe, is the middle class. And that's going to come in the next five to 10 years. Because currently, despite the things that you hear, the average one percenter pays about 30 30 to 32% of his income in taxes. And by that, I mean all income, capital gains, wages, interest income, all of it. He pays on average about 30 to 32% of that in all federal taxes combined, right? Compare that to the middle class. The average person in the middle class pays about 14%. The average poor person pays about 2%. And what's going on here? The middle class and the upper middle class, those two groups, although they earn a lot less than the 1% individually, in total, they earn about twice what the 1% earns because there are so many of them. And they're being taxed at about half the rate. So I think that politicians are going to become more and more comfortable with turning their attention there. That's kind of like the great untapped tax resource. And if they're going to continue Social Security, I think that's who the, the hammer is going to fall on uh, hardest. And and that really is interest, an interesting issue regarding Social Security, because, I mean, obviously, when when Social Security was started, um, it was supposed to, it, it resembled almost like a savings account where all, all the workers, all the current workers paid into a program um, that was used to fund Social Security payments for for retirees. And then, you know, when they retired, the current workers would pay for them. And that system only worked insofar as, um, you know, the, the income of, of the amount of people that were working was enough to support the retirees. And part of that was because people didn't live as long. So social security payments were kept, um, you know, if, if life expectancy was five or 10 years shorter, um, then that was much less money going out. Um, and then also the the ratio of how much these these people earn, how many young people there were for every single old person um, or every single retiree. Um, that ratio has also changed dramatically. So um, what do you see with with Social Security? Um, is, is there a way to to fix that just as is without any sort of major reform? Because, I mean, obviously, as you know, that's that's one of the issues that very few people in Washington are willing to get anywhere near. Yeah, there's there, ultimately there's no way to fix Social Security. And the reason is because, as you say, it was it was built as a Ponzi scheme. People think it's a savings plan where you put money in and you retire later, you get the money back. It's not that at all. It's a Ponzi scheme where you put money in and it immediately turns around and goes back out the door to people who are who are uh, receiving the Social Security benefits. So anything we do to extend the life of Social Security is simply pushing off the inevitable. So if we could tweak the system so Social Security lasted another 50 years, 50 years from now, we would be having this exact same conversation all over again, except the magnitude of the problem would be 10 or 100 times more than what it is now. So pushing off uh, the, the demise of Social Security actually, in that sense, is, is a bad thing to do. Now, I think if there's a solution here, 
It involves winding Social Security down. And it turns out there is an interesting possibility here. And that plays off of the fact that the return, the rate of return you can expect to get off of your Social Security taxes is so incredibly low. And by incredibly low, I mean it depends on the demographic. For most people, it's about a 1% return. For some people, it's actually a negative return that what you're putting in over with your payroll taxes over the years is actually more than what you're getting back. The rate of return is so low that most workers would actually be better off paying into the system until roughly age 45 and then walking away and saying, okay, here I am age 45, don't tax me social security tax anymore. And in exchange, I forfeit all claim to social security benefits. It turns out the rate of return Social Security is so bad that the average American's actually better off doing that than sticking with the system. And so if we instituted that kind of a plan, had the ability to opt out at age 45, we could start a wave of people off of Social Security. We could, in effect, wind the thing down. And you probably don't want to wind it down to zero because there are some people who need that safety net, right? They can't work for whatever reason it is, and you want something there to 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 protect them, a, a, a benefit of last resort, if you want to think of it like that. But it's not built and was never intended as a general savings plan. The longer it persists, the worse that problem is going to become. Yeah, and the the data here um, reveals a, a, a very similar story. So the average household is paying about $8,500 a year in Social Security taxes, including what they're paying in their employer contribution. So if that was invested in the S&P 500 instead over the course of their 40 year or whatever, uh, or however ever long their career is, um, and, and if we take the average rate of return of the S&P 500, they would have about $6 million by retirement or about $250,000 every single year for the rest of their life, whereas Social Security is only paying them about $18,000 a year. So obviously, the, the return here is, is, is broken. I mean, it's, it's a absolutely minute fraction of what they could have made had it been privatized. But that's that's the only issue that um, we get into then, which is that what about people who can't work or people, you know, who who don't make enough money to be able to save save a, a, even a small percent of their income? Um, what what happens then? Um, so where where can we go with reform? Because the vast majority of people would be better off saving the money for themselves, um, you know, in in stocks or mutual funds or real estate or wherever. Um, but what do we do about um, the the very poorest of Americans then? Yeah. And what you do, I, I don't know. Um, my preference would be to leave it to the states, let the individual states try their own thing. And you'll get 50 experiments. Some experiments will work well, others won't, and we'll learn from the ones that work well. And if that if that bothers people too much, then the, the next best solution in my mind is just keep Social Security, just dramatically restrict who it applies to. So rather than applying it to all the workers in the United States, it would apply to a fraction of a, of a group. I don't know what that number would be, perhaps somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 10 percent. All right. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. So despite the unprecedented levels of debt and unfunded liabilities, um, not only with 
social security, but also all sorts of programs. Um, there seems to be nobody in Washington on either side of the political aisle calling for a decrease in spending or anything even remotely resembling balancing the budget. So like anybody else, if we assume that politicians act in their own best interest, um, namely to get reelected, it makes sense why nobody is willing to get rid of social programs that would almost certainly make them unpopular with a large group of voters. So, Dr. Davies, is there any way to reconcile the political disadvantages of cutting spending with the economic advantages of doing so? No, there's no way to do that. Um, this is this is simply a problem that won't go away. And it's a, it's a function of how our political system has evolved, that every one of us can point to the government and say, well, you should be spending less on and list some things we don't want them spending money on. And and the problem is every one of us wants the government to spend money on the thing that we like, and we all like different things. And you put that all together and what you get is a system in which we get all of these things and, and the, the government just keeps growing. The, the answer here to the extent that there is or was an answer is a limited government. That is a constitution that says the federal government can only do the following things. Anything not on this list, the federal government cannot do. If we had a system like that, then the politicians wouldn't be able to spend the money on the things they're spending on because it would all be unconstitutional. And the the sad thing is that's exactly the government we had prior to the early 1900s when people got it in their heads. I say people, Americans in general, got it in their heads that the government should not be constrained by the Constitution. And we made all sorts of arguments about why certain things were good ideas that the government should do. And yes, it's not in the Constitution, but it's a good idea. Okay, well, some of those ideas were indeed good. Some of them weren't. But the fact is it opened the door. It opened the door to government doing whatever it is that the voters wanted. And where we end up is where we are right now with a government that is trying to make everybody happy by doing what people want. And we're at a point where we can't afford any of it. Yeah, and that's um, an, an interesting thing I, I read from you that you tweeted out a couple couple days ago was that the reason none of these problems get fixed is because nobody in the system gets rewarded for fixing any of the problems. So the voters elect politicians, they get rewarded for making all sorts of promises. Then they come in and dump it on the bureaucrats, um, you know, who make tons of policy, but they're not accountable to the public at all. So. This whole system, um, it, it seems like there's a, a fundamental flaw in our in our political system. And the way that you described it, um, the, a, a, a limited government, um, the, the way I see it, though, um, is limiting it at a federal at a federal level would would disperse a lot of that responsibility down to the individual states. Um, wouldn't that then just shift the problem instead of one big government and not into the instead? Now you have 50 states, all of which are in debt and trying to appease all of their people and you just have 50 small countries with the exact same problem as one big country yeah that's an interesting question and there's a big difference between the federal government and the state governments and the difference is the voters have the ability to walk away that if i'm in pennsylvania and pennsylvania is doing whatever it's doing its version of social security and medicare or welfare or whatever and i look around and i think to myself we're spending a lot of money here my taxes are high and i don't like what's uh, what we're getting for the money i'm free to leave i can go get a job in virginia and go live there or i can go to wisconsin live there i can move my ability to walk away 
is a is a force on that state government to restrict what it's doing because when i walk so too do my taxes now i can't do that with the federal government i mean we can make noise about well if you don't like it move to canada it will hang on a second first off you can't just move to canada you need canada's permission to do so and depending on how much wealth you have the federal government the united states government might tax you to do that so moving moving from the united states to another country is not nearly as easy as moving from one state to another and that ability to move between states has the same force on states that our ability as consumers has when we say we can well, i'm going to leave i'm not going to buy from best buy anymore i'm going to go buy from amazon i put i put pressure on best buy to do whatever it's doing better because i'm going to take my money and walk away so too could we be doing that at the state level but we don't because we govern so much at the federal level well that's that's a very a, a very compelling argument in the sense um as we all know, um, when, when you remove, when you introduce competition into a into a marketplace, it, it forces the the um, the suppliers or, or you know the other side of that market to become as efficient as possible. So I I don't see why a similar phenomenon is not possible with government. Um, so yeah, that's that's definitely well, a no. And, and you you know it's possible with government because of how governments are currently reacting right now there's this push to have all the countries of the world sign this pledge saying that they will tax corporations at least 15 percent now what are they doing they're reacting to the fact that corporations can move between countries and if one country's tax rate is too high it's going to move to another one so what they're trying to do is form the, the governments of the world are trying to form this huge cartel in which they're all charging, they're all taxing the same amount so that it reduces your incentive as a company to leave one country to go to another. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, that is exactly the very definition of a cartel. And it, it is, it is certainly a, a whole issue in and of itself. So one of the other things you spoke about in that lecture that stuck with me and that is becoming ever more apparent are the ways in which taxation affect public behavior, especially that of large corporations and wealthy individuals who are able to arrange their finances in a way that minimizes their tax burden. It, millions of words long, both the tax codes and our welfare system seem to have become far too complex for any individual to be able to comprehend. So you've been an outspoken advocate for a simplification of both of these things in the past. So can you please give us a rundown of what changes you would make towards such an end um, if it were entirely in your control? Yeah, the, the thing we have to keep in mind here is that pretty much everybody involved, maybe with the exception of the taxpayer, um, wants a complex tax code. The, the politicians want a complex tax code because it enables them to write in carve-outs for special interests without anybody noticing, right? If it's 2,000 pages long, the tax code, and I write in a paragraph that benefits, you know, people who are contributing to my campaign, almost no one's going to notice this. And if somebody does notice it and start raising a stink, nobody else is going to pay much attention because it's 2,000 pages long, right? And, and so I, as the politician, benefit from the, from the complexity of the tax code because I can hide what I'm doing. So too, do companies uh, and lobbyists who would contribute to me benefit from that complexity because they also want what I'm doing hidden. The more hidden it is, the more able I am to help them because I don't have to face voter backlash. So basically, a simplified tax code would benefit the 
taxpayers, but it would not benefit either the lobbyists, the companies, or the politicians, and that's why we don't have one. But were I to do it, I would pick a single tax on a single thing, and we could argue what that single thing would be. Some people would be in favor of taxing income. I think it's a little more clean to tax consumption, to tax spending, but whatever it is, it would be that, and that would be the only tax. There's no... Let's take consumption as an example. There'd be a consumption tax, and it would probably have to be pretty high, let's say 20%, but there'd be nothing else. There'd be no payroll tax, no income tax, no capital gains tax, no tax on interest, just a consumption tax. Yeah, and I mean, I think what that would do, aside from just simplification, is it would stop distorting investment decisions because right now when you invest... um, you're, you 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 face multiple layers of taxation. So you get taxed on the income when you when you earn it, then you invest, and you get taxed again on your returns, and then capital gains taxes. So that every every um, every dollar that you you invest, I mean, it, it's already been taxed, and then it's taxed a few more times after that. So it, it distorts investment decisions, which is really damaging to an economy in the long run. So certainly, yeah, a, yeah a consumption tax yeah, and, would fix that. It would be simpler that way. Any sort of distortion to behavior is going to be bad for the economy. We get less economic output. And a consumption tax also distorts behavior, but it distorts behavior, at least the way I described it, in a, in a much simpler, much more minimalistic way than the taxes that we currently have in place. All right. Um, well, those are all the questions I have for you today. I'm sure our viewers will love listening to your answers. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Davies. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. As always, thank we'll you for having soon. me. As always, we'll be back soon with the latest. Thank you, everyone.